right. Thank you, band. You guys are awesome. How's everyone doing this morning? Some of you are asking, what happened to Pastor Joe? He is in a warmer climate right now, down in Florida with his beautiful family. In fact, he's preaching in Daytona uh, with some friends of ours, uh, so he know our pastor, he never misses church, amen? So you have me this morning. My name is Jared Walker, one of the pastors on staff here at Metro Praise International. It's good to have you all here today. I want to continue in our worldview series, so we're not missing a beat right now. In fact, today, uh, the message is titled, Jesus, Lord of All. And we're going to build on some of the things we've been learning. If we could pull up the notes, please. Today, we're going to take a fresh look at our axiom. And we've been learning about that. I'm going to do a little bit of recapping so you can know what the axiom is. But for us... The long story short is that our axiom is the Bible. It is God's word. And we're going to explore how it speaks truthfully and authoritatively to every part of life. Our resurrected Lord, Jesus Christ, has all authority in heaven and on earth. And as his disciples, we are charged to teach the nations to obey everything in his word. So... What I want to guide this message, what I want to guide your hearing of this message, what I want you to walk away with is, is how you're going to answer two questions. Number one, what does it mean to make disciples of all nations? Put that on your mind right now. Maybe write that down. Second question, what does it look like when we obey everything Jesus commanded in every sphere of our culture? Have this in your mind. Let's scroll down to the series definitions. I do want to build up because if this is your first time today, you might be a little lost with some of our terminology here. So the first thing I want you to see down to definitions, please. First thing I want you to see is our definition of a worldview. A worldview is how you see the world and give an explanation for everything you believe. Now, we Christians have a worldview. Muslims have a worldview. Secular humanists have a worldview, and even if you don't realize you have a worldview, you have a worldview. They're just like noses. Everyone point to your nose. All right, everyone in this room has a nose and has a worldview, okay? Whether you've given it much thought or not, you still have one. You're not looking um, objectively at the world. You're looking at it through a certain set of lenses. For us here at MPI, we want a biblical worldview, we define it as seeing the world through the lens of God and his word. So the Bible is basically a filter through which we see everything else, through which we analyze all knowledge. Everything that comes our way comes through this word. And as you can keep scrolling down here, I want us to see the triangle that we have. This is the worldview triangle. This is just a visual aid for helping understand how worldviews work, how people think, how people know what they know, how people process and analyze information. And the first thing we start with is our axiom, which is at the bottom, implying that it is the foundation of the worldview. For the Christian, it is God's word. It is scripture. We believe, first and foremost, that God exists and has revealed himself to us 
clearly and decisively in the Bible, the 66 books of the Bible, from Genesis to Revelation, these become for us the foundation of all truth and knowledge. And then when we go up one tier, based on our axiom, we then develop presuppositions. What does our axiom tell us about the world? Well, if our axiom is the Bible, the Word of God gives us the following categories of knowledge. God, creation, humanity, Jesus, salvation, judgment. Now, these are huge categories. Today, we're going to focus on creation and humanity. I want you to know how the biblical worldview impacts right here, right now, the world we live in, society at large, the stuff that's on your news, the stuff that's on your social media feed, you get me? What's going on in the world today, and what does the Bible have to say about it, and how should we as Christians be thinking about it? And then moving up from there, from presuppositions, we go to propositions. These are all implications derived from good biblical exegesis and deductive logic. So God has given us the Bible. He has revealed it to us. And God has also given us brains so that we can study the Bible. Amen. And try to understand its meaning and try to make application to our lives. And so from there we develop propositions. At the very top, we have best guesses. These are hypotheses. These are scientific and experiential claims. Now, some folks want to put science at the bottom. You ever have that friend like, I believe in science. You got that friend? Okay. So some people like science at the bottom. They say science is their foundation. But really, science is not a foundation because science requires a foundation. You need a reason to believe in logic. You need a reason to believe in the uniformity of nature. You need a reason to believe in morality so that you can be truthful in your research. These things are all required for the scientific method. And so science is simply, from the Christian standpoint, it's looking at God's stuff. It's looking at the world God made and discovering all the secrets, all the Easter eggs for my video game friends that God is hidden in his world. Think about this. From the beginning of time, there's always been the resources that exist, and there's always been the physical laws that exist that make an iPhone possible, right? And so through discovering God's world, through discovering how God made the world and how it works, we can now make iPhones and airplanes and everything else. You get me? So, but that's at the very top. You still need a foundation for that. And we have a foundation. We believe that God exists. We believe that God has revealed himself to us. But let's say you're not a Christian. If you're an atheist, you still presuppose certain things about life. If you don't presuppose, for example, that there is objective morality, you're going to live like Hitler. You know what I'm saying? Because there's really no basis to decide what is good or evil. It's all up to our own whims. So... Atheists live like Christians when they behave morally, okay? Atheists live like Christians when they behave logically because we came from God. We came from an intelligent designer, a brilliant creative mind who made this world and gave us minds that can comprehend the world. And then he gave us the uniformity of nature. All of these things come from a God. 
The Darwinian evolutionary theory has no accounting for any of this. The Big Bang has no accounting for any of this. So if you don't have God, you don't have a foundation for anything you believe. You don't have a rational defense for why you live the way you live and why the world is the way it is. Only God and his word can truly give us that. Amen. So that's just a little recap there because we're going to be using this terminology throughout. If we could scroll down to the sermon text, what we're going to focus on today is what we call the Great Commission. Matthew 28 verses 18 through 20. These are the marching orders that Jesus has given to his disciples. Having come to earth, lived a sinless life, died for our sins, raised from the dead, Jesus, before he goes back up to the Father, is leaving his disciples in charge. And he's basically saying, carry on my work. This is what he tells them in Matthew 28. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Now, something you should know about me, I can't resist a good pun. I don't know who Shirley is, but she must be very important because Jesus will always be with her. Praise God. We're going to spend a lot of time right now just breaking down this text. I'm going to focus on a few key phrases. I'm going to omit some other key phrases. Not that everything, every word here is important, amen? But there are a few things I want us to focus on. First thing is where Jesus says, all authority has been given to me. In order to understand what Jesus means by this, we have to go back, way back, back into time. Back to the beginning, the book of Genesis tells us that God made mankind in his own image and likeness, and he blessed mankind. He blessed the man and woman, told them, be fruitful, multiply, uh, fill the earth, and subdue it, right? He basically is telling them, rule the earth for me, represent me in the world, fill the earth with my likeness, fill the earth with my image, and rule the earth the way I would have you rule it. That was the charge given to mankind from the beginning. Genesis chapter 3, though, uh, describes how it basically all went to pot when Eve listened to the serpent. She doubted God. She ate the fruit. She did the one thing God said not to do. It's like, hey, you had one job, you know. Don't eat the fruit. She ate the fruit. She gave some to her husband. He was being a passive, lazy husband. He wasn't taking charge. And, uh, and, and so their eyes were open. They were ashamed. They tried to, you know, cover themselves with fig leaves. And what happened in short from that point on is that man has lost touch with God and has also lost control of the world. Yes, we do have authority, uh, but, but a lot of it belongs to Satan. And then you see how authority is misused and abused. You see incompetent authority. Anybody, you got that boss on your job, it's like, why does this guy have authority? You know, you look at North Korea, Kim Jong-il, why does this guy have authority? You see authority being misused, abused, mismanaged, right? And that's the way it's been going, and the world has been a wreck ever since because we have lost touch with God and we have lost our true authority. So Jesus, the God-man, this is God's solution, okay? 
is that at the fullness of time, God would send his son, born of a woman, in the flesh, in human likeness. So God became a man to live a sinless life, to die for sins, to raise from the dead and conquer death. And as a result, he has regained what mankind has lost in the garden. And as a result, he is seated at the right hand of, of power. And he's given the name above all names, above all rule and dominion and authority, that at the name of Jesus Christ, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He has all authority. So Jesus, going back to the Genesis passage, be fruitful fill the earth and subdue it, Jesus has all authority to fill the earth with disciples and subdue the nations for God the Father. Then he goes on. He says that he has all authority in heaven. It's hard to picture heaven, but the Bible does describe it in places that there are living creatures as they are described, covered with eyes and six wings, there are seraphim, which literally mean burning ones. These creatures are on fire. It's, it's, it's an amazing, mind-blowing scene. But what I want you to know about heaven is heaven is a place of perfect peace and order and joy. And you know why there's perfect peace and order and joy? It's because everyone obeys Jesus in heaven. Everyone loves Jesus in heaven. Everyone worships Jesus in heaven. There's no rebellion. There's no sin. There's no folly. There's only God's perfect presence permeating everything with no sin. Nothing to get in the way of that. Jesus has all authority in heaven. And I think that's easy for us to believe because none of us live in heaven right now. Now I know in the sense, hey, we're seated in heavenly places. But, but, but we live in Chicago, Illinois, right? So here and now, in this world we live in, Jesus also has authority. He has authority in heaven and on earth. That means Chicago. That means City Hall. That means Washington, D.C. means Hollywood. It means Silicon Valley with the, tech, with the tech moguls like, you know, Facebook and Google. Everywhere, Jesus has authority on planet earth. So he not only reigns in this ethereal realm called heaven, but he rules the earth right now. The nations are the possession of Jesus given to him by the Father. Now you might ask, if Jesus has all authority, why is the earth so messed up? And the answer is simple. Because the nations are in rebellion to his authority. They don't want his lordship. They don't want to obey him. They don't want to serve him. Let's look at Psalm 2 for a moment, shall we? Psalm 2. You guys can open that up. Psalm chapter 2. It says in verse 1, Why do the nations conspire and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up, and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us break their chains and, th and throw off their shackles. This is a picture of China. You know, in communist China, they're really trying to double down in their suppression of religious freedom. They basically want the Communist Party, also known as the People's Republic of China, to replace God. Did you know that right now, 
they're making a move to have people give thanks and praise to the state before their meals. Give thanks and praise to the People's Republic of China. They want to replace God. They're shaking their fists. We're not going to let God tell us what to do. We're not going to tell God tell us how to form a society. This is America, folks. This is a nation that has murdered upwards of 60 million children in the womb. Government funded. Planned Parenthood, the Walmart of abortion. Government funded and celebrated by key people in our society. Wickedness. The nations are in revolt against King Jesus. But it goes on in verse 4. It says, the one enthroned in heaven laughs. He scoffs at them. He rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will proclaim the Lord's decree. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask me and I will make the nations your inheritance and the ends of the earth your possession. You will break them with a rod of iron. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. Therefore, you kings, be wise. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and celebrate his rule with trembling. Kiss his son or he will be angry and your way will lead to your destruction. For his wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. As it is, the nations are in rebellion against God. There are people shaking their fist against God. And as they reject God's rule, they are making the earth a very wicked place to live in. That's not the only accounting for all of that. But that's one of the main reasons you see that. Yes, he has all authority, but they're not listening. But God is patient. And God is kind. And he's giving them an opportunity to repent. And he's sending folks out, folks like you and me, to warn them, to preach to them the gospel of the kingdom, that King Jesus has conquered death, and he's fixing to put all of his enemies under his feet like a footstool. And you are being offered terms of surrender. That's our message to this world. We should not take God's patience for slowness or his kindness for weakness. He is giving us the opportunity to repent now. He's giving China the chance to turn around. He's giving Kim Jong-un the chance to turn around. He's giving the United States the chance to turn around. But the day will come. His wrath will flare up in an instant. And they will be destroyed. If you were here last week, you know how Pastor Joe preached on Revelation, on the final judgment. A literal bloodbath of the wicked people of the nations will take place upon Christ's return. But I want to talk about here and now. What do we do in the meantime? Jesus says, therefore, go. Everyone say, go. go. Until his return, Jesus is extending his rule on the earth by the preaching and teaching of his disciples. He is sending us out into the world with his authority. This is how he does it. And he goes on and he tells them his strategy for world domination. This is it. He's not like a James Bond villain, okay? This is how he's going to do it. His lordship is not established by the sword or by political maneuvering. 
Jesus' strategy to change the world is by changing the hearts of sinful men and teaching them his righteous ways. It is a bottom-up approach that starts with individuals and households, but goes on to impact institutions, governments, and societies as more and more disciples are made. Everybody see that? You start with the hearts of individuals. Imagine if the United States, 300 million people, and that was 300 million born-again disciples, people who love God and love their neighbor. Could you imagine? You know, we wouldn't have desperate housewives on TV. I think that show is canceled anyway. We wouldn't have abortions are us, Planned Parenthood being celebrated. That, that would be abolished. That would be a horror to this nation if we had a nation full of disciples. You get me? And so we believe that as more and more disciples are made, we are making the world better. It goes on and he says, this is how you make disciples, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. When someone becomes a disciple of Christ, they surrender fully to his lordship and seek to align their lives with his teachings. The extent of Jesus' teaching goes well beyond one's spiritual disciplines and personal morals. He is not merely concerned with what goes on in church services and prayer closets. Jesus' teachings contained in the whole Bible are binding in the home, the workplace, the community, and in society at large. Jesus has authority in the church, but also in the world, in government, education, media, etc. There is nothing truly secular and there is no neutral ground. Wherever Jesus is not acknowledged as Lord, you will find a competing worldview and something or someone else claiming lordship in that sphere. Thus, the Christian disciple cannot leave his or her worldview in the church. Obeying Jesus' teaching means that we seek to bring everything around us under the lordship of Jesus. Now, let me give you an example of how this works. The principle is that when you obey Jesus, you are extending his rule and reign in the earth. Edwin, could you stand up, my good brother? Let's give it up for our brother, Edwin, a mighty man of God. Edwin, are you a disciple of Jesus? Do you seek to obey everything Jesus commanded? Amen. And so Jesus commanded you to love your wife as Christ loves the church, right? Amen. He, 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 he teaches you that. You obey that teaching. I know you do. Okay? What does he teach regarding your children? Not to exasperate them, but to train them up in the fear and admonition of the Lord. Do you do that? Amen. You do that. So in Edwin's home, we have a slice of heaven. And I don't just mean that in a sentimental way. I mean that is heaven on earth there. Just as I described heaven, in Edwin's home, everyone worships Jesus. In Edwin's home, everyone loves Jesus. In Edwin's home, everyone obeys Jesus. And as a result, there is order, there is peace, there is joy. And let's just be real, outside of homes that obey God's standards, that obey Jesus' teachings, you find a lot of heartbreak. You find fatherlessness. You find abuse. You find divorce. You find all types of horrors, right? Outside of Edwin's home, it's a scary, dark world. But in Edwin's home, it's a place of refuge. It's a place of safety. It's a place where there's love. It's a place where there's support. It's a place where life is spoken. Amen? It's the kingdom of God on earth. At the Rodriguez house. Thank you, my brother. Thank you for standing up for that example. Now, we can readily clap to that. 
But I think there are Christians, Christians who have a hard time thinking that would apply, let's say, to a Christian lawmaker. Okay? A Christian lawmaker goes to, to Capitol Hill for, for session of Congress. They're a disciple of Jesus. They want to obey his teaching, right? Are we saying that the teachings of Jesus don't apply at Capitol Hill? Are we saying that Jesus does not have authority at Capitol Hill? Come on. Think about it, folks. There are people who are essentially pro-choice. They, they support abortion. You know, lawmakers that given every chance, they'll vote for things that, that promote abortion. And then they'll talk out of two sides of their mouth. They'll say, but I'm personally pro-life. In other words, whatever belief they may or may not have, I doubt it's a sincere belief. I think they're just trying to appease folks. But whatever belief they may or may not have, they're saying, well, that's relegated. That basically stays, I keep that to myself. And that has no business in my job. No, my friend, Jesus has all the business in your job. He owns every inch of planet Earth. It's all his. So the Christian lawmaker, the Christian filmmaker, whatever you go, whatever you do, you do so with the intent of being obedient to everything that Jesus commands you, amen, and spreading his lordship, extending his kingdom to everything that's under your influence, everything that you have something to do with, amen? So that's what we have is the breakdown of our text here. I want to look now at some applications, some takeaways uh, for the message. The first thing is I want you to know your axiom. Okay, I know I unloaded a $500 word, but I hope I defined it well enough for you earlier. The axiom is the foundation of your worldview. And what is our axiom? God's word. So I'll just read from the notes here. Today, many Christians find themselves woefully unprepared to make disciples and impact the world because they don't know their own faith well enough. A recent survey of American evangelicals shows that many Christians are either not sure about or flat out disagree with the core doctrines of the Bible. How can anyone teach others to obey what they themselves are not sure of or aren't even in agreement with? The result is that Christians cannot defend their views or properly analyze everything from anything from a biblical perspective. They have no defense when their faith is attacked, and they must allow the world to direct the, the narrative on life's most important issues because they really don't know what the Bible says about them. We as disciples must become deeply familiar with our axiom, the Bible. We should get to know its story, its core teachings, its tough text, how it was written, and how it was passed on to us. Most importantly, we must be confident that it is the very word of God and speaks truth to every part of our lives. Andrew, if you could scroll up and click the link on the survey. I mentioned a survey that was done of American evangelicals. Every two years, Ligonier Ministries does a, an expansive research on American Christians to find out what their beliefs are. And this just came out not too long ago for 2018. If we could just scroll down and, and just kind of be ready to flow with me here. All right. Uh, go up a bit. Up. Okay, up, up, up. Um, down, down, down. All right, statement number 11. Everyone sins a little, but most people are good by nature. Finding is that 52% of evangelicals agree. 
all right? That is not what is taught in the Bible, okay? The Bible teaches that we are fallen, we are sinful creatures, and that is why we need salvation. So that, that is a foundational thing there. If people are basically good, then what is salvation to begin with? You see, there's a lot of problems. These folks don't know what their Bible teaches. Let's go down. Okay, God accepts the worship of all religions, including Christianity, Judaism, and Islam. Okay, in 2018, we have 51% that agree with that statement, 42% that disagree. Again, you have a problem with the teachings of Jesus. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And, and, and we're, we're studying the Great Commission, Matthew 28. To me, that's the biggest sign that these other religions can't be right. Because Jesus commanded us to go out in the world and tell everyone to worship him. That includes Jews. Jesus was a Jew. His disciples were Jews. That includes Muslims. That didn't come along until much later. But it doesn't matter what you are now, what God you had before, what religion, what form of spirituality you had before. Jesus wants you to worship him now. That's the point. Let's go on. Okay. Right there. Statement number 13. Um, this was actually... Pretty, pretty, pretty good result here. It says, God counts a person as righteous, not because of one's works, but only because of one's faith in Jesus Christ. 91% agree with that. That's, that's, that's relatively a, a good finding on this survey. Let's go down a little bit more. Right there, right there. Okay, one true God and three persons. 97% agree with the basic proposition of the Trinity. All right, here's, here's an interesting one. Oh, Jesus is the first and greatest being created by God. In 2018, 78% actually agree with that statement. Jesus is the first and greatest being created by God. And some of you are saying, what's wrong with that? Well, you should have been here two weeks ago. We, we, we talked about that. This is what Jehovah Witnesses believe. This is an ancient heresy called Arianism. Jesus is not a created being. Jesus is God. And there's a whole world and a whole eternity of difference between those two propositions. And yet you have Christians, they just don't know no better. Now, I want to stop there. But what you're seeing in other research shows similar things is that many Christians don't believe in Christianity. Now, I'm hearing someone in my head tell me, uh, how dare you judge someone's walk? How dare you tell some? You're not in the place to decide what a Christian is and what a Christian isn't. They don't have to pass your test. Well, I'll pose a question to that person. Can you be a vegetarian and love you some lechon? You can't claim to be something and then do something else or believe something else that utterly contradicts what you, you, what you claim to be. Christianity isn't malleable. It's not what you want it to be. It's not what I want it to be. It's not what the culture wants it to be. Christianity is the truth revealed by Jesus Christ to the world. And whatever that truth is, if we're not in line with it, who has to change, Jesus or us? It's us. But you have Christians that don't, no Christianity. They don't even believe Christianity according to some of this. It's sad, folks. I think some Christians are like atheists in this way. What I mean is, if you go back up to the triangle, please, we explain how the atheist has presuppositions but no axiom, right? They presuppose logic, morality, and the uniformity of nature to try to make sense of the world, right? 
but they lack an axiom. They don't have any way to explain those things, do they? The Christian who does not know God's word is just like them. Yeah, oh yeah, Jesus is God. Jesus loves me. This I know, for the Bible tells me so. Yeah, Noah's Ark. Yeah, I remember that was, that was in a coloring book, you know? And they have this very shallow, surface-level understanding of their faith. They haven't read their Bible themselves. They get shallow messages. They're fed milk day after day after day like little babies. And as a result, they're like infants tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. Just like an atheist, they have no ability to actually defend what they believe. No ability. Let me give you an example here. You meet an atheist on the street... They open up the Bible to, to, to some passage in Numbers where God tells Moses, Hey, you see the Midianites? Kill them all. Kill all the Midianites. Numbers 31. You can see it for yourself. You meet some atheists. They're going to school you. They're going to make you feel bad about yourself. They're going to make you doubt what you believe. I didn't know that was there. Oh, oh, my goodness. Oh, my God, I, I'm glad for Jesus. And God, stop being so mean, you know? Like, I wish your pastor told you that before an atheist did. Like I said, you let the world direct the narrative. And now you got the world telling you Bible verses. And you let the world tell you what Jesus is like because your pastor ain't talking about those things. And I'm serious about numbers. I would to God that you read Numbers, Leviticus, that y'all do that. That you read your whole Bible. You know? We are a very Bible illiterate generation, friends. We need to go beyond, you know, just our little devotionals, our little fortune cookie texts that help us cope. Our little inspirational message. You're going to get, you're going to make it, you're going to make it, you're going to make it. Week after week. Man, you have no ground to stand on when you live that way, okay? So we must know our axiom. We must know God's word, and we must believe God's word. Now, I'm not going to click on the second link, uh, but you can, it, when you go to the notes, you can see where it says we must be confident in the very word of God. If you click that, it takes you to what is called the Chicago Statement on Biblical Inerrancy. And the long story short is that in this city in 1978, many Christian scholars and leaders convened to come up with a comprehensive statement on what they believe about the Bible. And the key word, as I said, is biblical inerrancy. They wanted to defend the idea that the Bible, because it is inspired by God, it is without error. Sadly, there are many Christians, even teaching in seminaries, that, uh, that are against that idea now. They are open to the Bible being full of errors. They are open to the Bible being full of contradictions. They are open to stories of the Bible being mere myths and fables and allegories. They're, they're cool with all of that. And they're teaching at some orthodox cemeteries. <clears throat> I mean seminaries. Help us, Lord. We must believe that God has spoken. Because if you don't believe that God has spoken, then we're just here with, with our opinion and everyone else has an opinion too. We believe that God has spoken. We believe that God has revealed himself to mankind. You know, and that's, that's what we go to the ends of the earth for. That's what we lay our lives down for. Not just someone's interpretation. Not just someone's good idea. 
Come on. And, and, and that's why when, when some of these mainline churches, they stop believing the Bible, man, they get backslidden quick. Because they don't have anything to stand on. There's nothing objective for them to hold on to. But let us move on. The first application is know your axiom, know your Bible, get into it, amen? Talk to one of your elders, deacons, maybe they'll, they'll give you some resources, Bible reading plans, something like that holds you accountable to getting in your word, but you got to do it, amen? And the second thing is live in holiness and excellence. Live in holiness and excellence. I think that holiness and excellence are, are two related concepts. If you live in holiness, you will live in excellence, Amen? Here's how it works. Every disciple should seek to live pure and holy lives, not only for the sake of their relationship with God, but to make the teaching about God, our Savior, attractive to outsiders. That's a quote from Titus 2, verse 10. God's Word not only teaches us good morals, but also wisdom. In other words, Christianity is not about just stuff you don't do. Like, I don't drink, smoke, or chew, or hang with those that do, you know? I used, to, I used to say bad words, and now I don't say bad words. You know, you just, if you relegate it to all these just personal morals, you're, you're missing it. Living unto God is living a life of excellence. It's living a life of wisdom, amen? amen? And it teaches you how to be people smart and to excel in all your endeavors. Anybody ever read Proverbs? Makes a lot of practical sense, doesn't it? But one of the greatest examples in the Bible to me is Daniel. Y'all know the story of Daniel. Dare to be a Daniel. Daniel was a godly young man. He was a Jew who was deported to live in Babylon. And Babylon is the epitome of a wicked pagan nation, a pagan culture steeped in occultism and false worship and immorality and cruelty. And he is placed in the palace of King Nebuchadnezzar. And in that palace, he doesn't compromise his standards whatsoever. He never, he, he never worships what they worship. He never engages in those dark practices. He never engages in those morality. He doesn't even eat the same food as them. He said, I can't eat that, baby. That ain't kosher. Don't even do that. There was once a time when the king issued an edict saying, hey, everybody's got to pray to me. And if you pray to anyone but me, I'm going to feed you to the lions. Y'all know that story. What do you think he did? Kept on praying to, to his God as he had always done. So he never compromised. I want you to get that. You, you Christians, you can't have this martyr complex like you can't be successful as a Christian. Like you can't be influential as a Christian. Even though, I get it, the world doesn't like Christians. The world doesn't like our voice. The world doesn't like our opinions. But stop thinking you have to either A, compromise in order to succeed, or you're just not going to succeed as a Christian. That is nonsense. That is a devil's lie, because even as Daniel lived a holy, righteous, set-apart life in the midst of Babylon, he excelled. He had an outstanding reputation. It was said of him that he had every matter of wisdom and understanding ten times that of his peers and his co-workers. How, much, how often is that said of Christians in the places we work? But that was said of Daniel. In fact... Daniel, by his wisdom, by the way God used him in that position, even the king of Babylon praised his God and gave him glory. You see it on multiple occasions. It's there in the notes. And multiple occasions. So it's fascinating here that as Daniel's influence increased, 
God's influence increased. Wow. So as we live holy, set-apart lives, we're not engaging in the superstitions. We're not bowing down to the idols of our culture. We're not living separatist lives either. You can be a friend of tax collectors and prostitutes. Just don't be a tax collector and prostitute. You can, you can be around, you can eat and drink, and people may call you a drunkard and a glutton, but that doesn't mean you have to be a drunkard and a glutton. You know what I'm saying? Like, does hanging around gangbangers make me a gangbanger? No. Does hanging around, uh, hanging out at, at the, well, I don't, I don't want to give you all any ideas, but would hanging out at the club automatically, I have to pull my Christian card now. You know what I'm saying? Again, I want to give you all ideas, but you, you got to be careful. So I'm like, yeah, he said we could go to the club. Like, yeah. And, and then y'all like, just anyway, you'll just, yeah, no, no. Frick, scratch that. No club. Uh, but, but you get me. Like, you can, you can be around sinners. You can love sinners. You can work with sinners and reach out to sinners and not be a sinner. You don't have to compromise, and you can be excellent. And you're going to stand out. You're going to, for all the right reasons, I believe it. Now, I don't have uh, any illusions about persecution. I know that there are some places, like in Pakistan, you can't get a job as a doctor. You can't get a job as an engineer. They only give you the lowest level jobs of like janitor, custodian, and all that because you're a Christian, because they suppress that. But I'm saying here, and God bless it, America, while we still can, let's get it, baby. Let's get it. Let's live in holiness and in excellence. The last thing, and let us all stand, if we could have the band come up. And prayer workers as well. The last thing I want you to see here is to be bold. In the Bible, in Proverbs 28, verse 1, it says, The wicked flee, though no one pursues, but the righteous are as bold as a lion. By the way, that's the biblical definition of jogging, fleeing while no one pursues. <clears throat> Disciples of Christ should be the boldest and most articulate about what they believe in. When asked about the hope we have in Christ, we must be ready to give an answer with gentleness and respect. When wickedness and error are being promoted, we must boldly correct it with God's truth. Many Christians are afraid of turning people off in this way because they mistake boldness for pushiness and arrogance. But God will not use cowardice and vagueness to draw people to himself. That may win some goats, but true disciples will be attracted to courage and passion. And we see this in the world. We see that when uh, big-name pastors and big-name Christians, they have those opportunities. They're on Larry King. They're on The View. They're on Katie Couric. And they're asked a plain, straight question that you could answer in two seconds. They dance around it. They hem and they haw. So I'll give one example. A famous pastor from New York is on Katie Couric. He's like, do you, she, she says to him, do you have a stance on homosexuality? And he's like, well, we have a stance on love. And she looks at him sideways like a confused dog. You know, what? what are you, I, I, do, you, do you or do you not? Well, you know, we just got to have conversations first. Blah, 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 blah. And so he's, he's refusing 
to say anything clearly on that subject, even though the Bible's clear. Bible's clear. And as a result, because he's not saying it, he's letting her say it. He's not giving the Bible's version of it. Katie Couric gets to give her version of it. The View gets to give their version of it. Larry King gets to give his version of it. Jimmy Kimmel gets to give his version of it because Christians ain't saying nothing. They're not saying anything that matters. They're just talking about, hey, let me help you cope. Hey, let me help you feel better about yourself. Let me help you be like a more authentic you. Whatever. And Christianity becomes irrelevant. Yeah, you're going to win goats. You're going to win people who want their ears tickled, but you're not going to make disciples that way. Help us, Lord. I want us to conclude this message with this saying here. When we make disciples of all nations, we are partnering with God to answer the Lord's prayer in Matthew 6.10. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And, and Adam, if you, band, if you guys could get ready for that song we wrote about that. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. Every head bowed and eyes closed in this place. Reflect on what you've heard the past few minutes. God wants to use you. You are God's plan to change the world. You are God's plan to change the world. Doesn't matter what your vocation is. Doesn't matter what your background is. Doesn't matter what talents you have or don't have. You are God's plan to change the world. You may be called to a lot of things, but something we're all called to is to make disciples. We have altar workers here. These are deacons, leaders in this church. I want to invite you all to come up for prayer. The first person I, I want to address is that timid person, that who, me? Who, me? Can I really make disciples? Can I really make a difference? Can my life really matter? You struggled with doubt about the call of God to, to make disciples. I'm not talking about being a pastor or anything. I'm saying to make disciples, to win souls and influence the culture for Jesus. And you think you're disqualified. I want you to come up and pray with somebody. Help us, Lord. Strengthen our hearts, Lord. want to put this invitation I want to see y'all up here if you need prayer if you need to know your axiom if you're just here admitting like man I really don't know the word I have a hard time understanding it I haven't been I haven't been diligent about it if you want to repent and say Jesus I'm gonna I'm gonna read your word I'm gonna be a student of your word 
come up to come up for prayer right now. If you have difficulty living in holiness and excellence, if you have a bad witness because you don't live according to Christian standards like you should, if you have a hard time impacting and influencing others because of of you're out of line with Jesus, come up. Come up. God will use you. And if you want to be bold as a lion, Thanksgiving. Let's make Thanksgiving awkward for Jesus. Let's preach. Let's be bold about what we believe to our friends and family. If that's been a struggle for you, come up for prayer. The rest of you, let's worship the Lord together. Oh, oh, oh.